This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guests are two addiction psychiatrists, Dr. Cornell Stanshew and Dr. Thomas Penders. I responded to a webinar they gave in episode 38. You might want to listen to it. I thought they overstated the dangers of Kratom and wondered why you'd prescribe buprenorphine for Kratom withdrawals. We talk about that and the topic of Kratom and addiction in general. Okay, so it was a few months ago there was a webinar... I'm sh- it was a professional webinar, but a lot of I saw it in a uh, Facebook group that some of the Kratom advocates were uh, posting in. So I went in and listened, and um, I kind of got the idea that they were probably uh, maybe <laughs> post, you know, sending you weird messages or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I was like, well, I, I don't think it's a good idea maybe to uh, antagonize doctors. So I wanted to do a podcast about it. And I maybe I picked out a couple of things where I thought, you know, that's not right or whatever. But I didn't want to have it uh, like, you know, a us against them type of thing. So I hope you understood that. And I kind of had a little joke about dunking on you <laughs> or something in the podcast. But that was a joke because I'm a blogger. But what I wanted to do was kind of convey to the listeners that let's listen to doctors, even, you know, if, if don't don't see them as against, uh, you know, our advocacy. Um, so, so, I'm glad I didn't get to do the follow-up uh, webinar, um, but but I'm glad we're able to do this and and communicate. And I guess um, maybe we could start off. Um, uh, you can introduce yourselves and just talk about um, the type of work you do. Um, then I wanted to talk about addiction in general a little bit, so we all know kind of what we're talking about when we talk about addiction. And then we can talk about um, kratom addiction specifically, if that's okay with you. Um, but, uh, Dr. Stancy, I guess if you want to go first and just introduce yourself and talk about, um, where, where are you from and what you do? Sure, sure. So I, I do want to, to piggyback on, uh, on, uh, what, uh, what uh, you said about, uh, some of the discrepancy about from, um, you know, the Kratom community and the physicians. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Cornell Stancy. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and, uh, I'm uh, I'm based here in uh, in New Hampshire, and I would say that uh, I have been introduced to to kratom about uh, six seven years ago. Uh, it was actually through uh, um, a patient that I was uh, I was treating at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. That's when I I first learned about it, and since then um, I've been reading up on it, been informing other physicians about it. And I think both myself and uh, and Dr. Penders just grew along with uh, with the literature. There's been uh, quite a bit of publications in the last uh, few years, and we're part of that movement as well. And Dr. Penders, you're in North Carolina. Yeah, I'm in East uh, Eastern North Carolina. I'm a full-time uh, psychiatrist uh, practicing in an addiction setting. Uh, at a, a, a program called the Walter B. Jones Center, where we admit people who are generally uh, in pretty bad shape as a result of addiction to a variety of substances, everything from marijuana, alcohol, uh, of course, opiates is a big, big deal, and more and more methamphetamine. And we do see people coming in with Kratom who believe that uh, it's uh, it's causing them serious addictive problems. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had about 40 years experience in this area, and uh, my my primary work now is clinical. That is working with patients uh, who are struggling with addiction. Okay, great, great. And when we talk about addiction, what is the medical definition of addiction? Well, there are a variety of there are, there are a variety of uh, fairly complex. Uh, definitions of addiction. Uh, but I, I like to make it really simple. Uh, so when we're talking about the various substances that causes, cause us to feel good, to have, to have, to have an effect that's a euphoric effect on us. Uh, and we all, you know, most, most of the people in the United States use substances of various types uh, to, to change their mental state. Uh, 
the, when, when people use, use these substances recreationally, uh, they make them feel good and then they go back to work or they go through their daily lives and they feel good. There's a certain percentage of people who use these, who begin to use them compulsively, and they then find that they're no longer using the drug to feel good, but they're using the drug to feel normal. In other words, if they don't use it, they're feeling very badly and they're sort of need to use it in order to have a feel, sort of normal feeling about their lives, but they're, they're really trapped mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in an addictive cycle where they're very, very dependent on having this drug and their life becomes increasingly constricted along maintaining the use of that drug and frequently recovering from the use of it and then the, the, the devastating consequences that occur as a result of uh, the constricted life that they live that way. I know that's a, so that, that, I think that, that would be the simplest way for me to explain how we see the, uh, uh, the addiction condition. What's the source of addiction? I mean, does it, is it sourced from the use of drugs? Because if, if that would be the case, I would think everybody who ever used any drug would become addicted to it. Or is it sourced from maybe uh, past trauma or maybe a genetic predisposition? Yeah, yeah there's definitely a, a variety of factors that can influence uh, the course of an addictive disorder, but also vulnerability to it. As you mentioned, uh, trauma certainly is one that predisposes individuals to uh, try and self-medicate with various illicit or illicit substances. Certainly having a genetic vulnerability, uh, uh, almost a distorted uh, uh, circuitry in their brain that predisposes them to advance much more quicker from, uh, from use to, uh, to that addictive uh, cycle also plays a role. But it uh, it all starts with uh, with exposure to to the substance. That's uh, that's what tends to trigger the the majority of uh, of um, uh, addictions. And then uh, how that progresses from there is dictated by uh, the individual's environment, by uh, the individual's underlying uh, neurobiological uh, underpinnings, uh, genetics. So it's, a, it's certainly a, a multitude of factors, but again, it all starts with uh, with exposure to to the substance. Brian, Brian, okay. I would you know I'd, I'd like to just to say here that over the past 25 years, we've learned a lot about the neurobiology of addiction, and we do know that all drugs that have the potential for producing the addictive syndrome have effects on a certain part of our brain that is responsible really for motivation for pleasure, uh, for reinforcement uh, of, of pro-social behaviors, if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, individuals who are vulnerable have some vulnerability within that neurological system, but they also have social vulnerabilities, obviously. And so it, uh, it is, it's somewhat complex, but it's not so complex that we can't understand it. I think also a big distinction should be made between the various levels of substance uh, substance use. Uh, not everybody that uses uh, a substance has an addiction. There's mm -hmm. substance use, there's abuse, um, and then there's uh, there's addiction, the highest level of, uh, of them all. And one, uh, one aspect that I think a lot of times I know, for example, on, on your blog, we see a lot of patients that do report benefit, that do report a lot of success stories. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, like I indicated, these are not the same individuals that we tend to see in, uh, in our clinic. We, uh, we see the ones whose uh, use, whose uh, uh, substance abuse has progressed to a level of addiction, side effects where we need to, to intervene medically. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was my follow-up, is, is there such a thing as responsible youth? And, and we were hearing a lot of successful stories, like people were using Kratom as 
maybe, you know, almost like a, a exit ramp off of harder drugs. And we weren't seeing that reflected in media. It's it, There seemed to be kind of like a, you know, sensationalistic uh, drug horror story type of strain going through the media. And just to balance that out, there was a lot of people that seemed to be, you know, you know, a lot of people say, you know, it saved my life. And there's so many people that are saying, you know, I was addicted to opiates and and I discovered Kratom and now I can function. And and so that that's kind of where I am with the blog with with highlighting like the positive stories. But I know there is Kratom addiction. And, and you know, I um, would you consider there such a thing as responsible substance use or would you just or is it ideally people would not use substances at all? Look, the use of substances have been part of human nature uh, as far back as uh, history is recorded. So, uh, yeah, there is a spectrum from, I guess, what you would call social use. I, I don't know what, why you would want to use the term responsible, but uh, yeah, your the, the purpose is to alter your... Uh, view of the world, really, the way you feel about the world. Um, so that can occur in social uh, responsible situations, but it occurs along a spectrum of uh, individuals who may use in a, what we would call a high-risk way. Mm -hmm. So they're used responsibly, they're using larger and larger amounts over time. And that's when we get concerned about preventing their uh, transition into the addictive syndrome, which is very destructive to individuals' lives. Mm -hmm. So clearly, the vast majority of people who use substances, and I, you have to, you have to, uh, you have to, to some extent, be aware of what substance you're talking about. So if you're talking about marijuana, there obviously there are a lot of people who use marijuana who don't get in trouble for using marijuana unless it's they're trouble legally because it's illegal. You want to call it responsible use? I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Obviously, there are a lot of people who use alcohol responsibly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of, but there, can you say there are responsible smokers? Um, can you say they're responsible cocaine addicts? And, 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 and as we look at the, uh, the various addictive substances, I don't know where Kratom falls into that spectrum. Clearly, there are a lot of people using it, as you say, and claim to be having a lot of benefit from it and not really getting into trouble. But as addiction psychiatrists, we're dealing with the people who are getting into trouble. Yeah. That's, and that's important for people listening to this to remember. It's, it, if somebody's going to the doctor and saying, this stuff, I can't get off this stuff, then... It, you're you're not seeking kratom consumers out and saying you're an addict. You better you know get to my <laughs> get to my doctor's office and we'll yeah. not at all. In fact, you know it's it's quite a remarkable that the the majority of uh, individuals who are using uh, kratom for pain relief, which is the most common reason that I understand that the uh, surveys uh, suggest that it's mm -hmm. being used, are sharing the, their kratom use with their primary care physician. So they must have some, at least, uh, agreement with their primary care physician that that's okay. So physicians are not frowning upon any everybody who's using kratom. Our our job is to warn people about the very the risk side of things, uh, and maybe not so much, unfortunately, on the benefits side of things. And I think uh, there's there's no doubt that individuals that are using and reporting benefit, uh, there's no doubt that perhaps there might be uh, maybe one uh, one of the, the many constituents of Kratom may have some therapeutic potential. We, uh, we don't know that. Uh, about 40 to 60 percent of the currently available uh, medications behind uh, your pharmacist counter are derived from, uh, from botanicals, but these underwent uh, rigorous uh, trials and they were um, evaluated very carefully, uh, not just for efficacy, but also for, uh, for safety. Uh, not, uh, not to go on a tangent, um, but just to, to use an analogy, um, there was a, a, a British physician in the 1700s that uh, was, uh, was dealing with uh, a caseload of patients with heart failure who were not uh, responding to uh, the currently available uh, 
pharmacological modalities. And uh, he did notice that one of, uh, one of them was, uh, was doing really well. Um, and after talking to him, he found out that he was using this old uh, herbal remedy from, um, from the foxglove plant. So he, uh, he started endorsing uh, the use of the foxglove. Uh, everybody was on it, doing well. But because of the variations in the, in the constituents, very much like with the, with kratom, there's a lot of components. They they vary tremendously. Uh, because of that, he found uh, mixed uh, mixed results. Some were doing better than others, and ultimately, he realized that some patients were also dying. Um, and later on, through research, he uh, they found out that uh, the toxicity index of the foxglove plant itself is very close to the therapeutic index. Later on, they were able to isolate the, the cardiac uh, glycosides, digoxin and digitoxin, and they're still used uh, right now in, um, in medical practice, but that wasn't uh, without the rigorous trials. So I, I just want to put it out there that uh, uh, Kratom as, as a botanical, uh, certainly uh, I, I do have concerns about some of uh, the patients, uh, my patients that are using it. But at the same time, I, I want to be open-minded and I want to, to say that uh, perhaps uh, through, through further studies and investigations, we may determine that semitragenine may have some, uh, uh, some therapeutic value. But for that to happen, we need, uh, we need the good rigorous trials. We need uh, to be able to determine exactly the, the dose, the frequency of administration, which conditions benefit from it. Um, because us as, uh, as physicians, we want uh, to be able to replicate uh, the, the treatment outcomes and also to have predictable treatment outcomes as well. We were looking at a study that went back to 1972 when they were looking at mitragenine as a sort of a treatment option for, for uh, morphine and withdrawal, much like uh, buprenorphine and suboxone is being used now. Um, that's kind of the whole thing. It, it seems like it's not going to be developed like that unless there's kind of a profit motive there. And that's kind of another issue because, you know, a lot of people, they have access to this stuff. If they're, and it, it seems to be relatively safe, however, in, if, as long as it's used in low doses. I think a lot of people are using way too much. Um, traditionally, they 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 brew it into a tea. I mean, it's all leaf material that we're getting, but it could be adulterated. That's why I, you know, the um, American Kratom Association is advocating for uh, testing requirements so people know what they're getting. And it just seems to be an option for for some people who, I mean, we we have a lot of uh, comments that Suboxone didn't work for them, and and and. and um, you know, Kratom does, and it's almost like, with the opioid crisis, it's almost like we're going to have to wait for clinical trials and everything, and, you know, the process for it to be developed into a drug, and there's a question of, should we be able to access this legally? Do you think drug policy, as it is now, hurts uh, people seeking treatment for addiction? Do you think like uh, cutting off access to Kratom until it gets developed through clinical trials is the right thing to do? Yeah, so you're asking a question of public policy. And yeah. uh, we, you know, as think of ourselves as scientists who are uh, interested in clinical treatment of patients, um, we can inform those who make public policy about the potential benefits and risks uh, of various substances. So in the case of Kratom, what do we say about the benefits? Uh, because, you know, as Cornell points out, Kratom, there isn't just one Kratom, there's, there's a whole variety of different uh, varieties of Kratom and preparations for Kratom, lack of standardization, which makes it difficult for us then to advocate for the use of Kratom, if we're talking to a legislator who's considering this. Sure, yeah. And when the legislature ask, if legislators just ask us, uh, what, what do you think about the dangers of this substance? Well, we, we're aware of those dangers and we tell them about those dangers. So our opinion about whether it's wrong to cut off 
access to Kratom or its right to cut it off is really irrelevant. It's, it, we don't make those decisions. Uh, so you're asking me essentially why I have a liberal or conservative point of political view, and I don't really think that it's relevant to my training uh, to be able to comment like that. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'm I'm just thinking in terms of how a, how a drug is developed. Yeah, I mean, maybe this goes outside of, you know, what you guys care to talk on. That's fine. We how about if we approach it like this? How about sure. if my brother-in-law and I right right now I don't think I even have a brother-in-law, but if, suppose my brother-in-law <laughs> says, "Listen, I've had this chronic back pain for a long time and I for a while I was taking Percocet and then I and the doctor wouldn't give it to me anymore. And I started using these uh, pain patches and they didn't work too much, too well either. And they started, and then I started taking Kratom and boy, I'm really, I'm really feeling a lot better now. I get pain relief and it's uh, not too much of a problem. And the Kratom doesn't bother me very much. And it, he wants some advice from me. What am, what am I going to say to him? And I, well, you know, I, I, you know, I would, tell him that if it's helping him well i'm really pleased to hear that it's helping him but be aware that we uh, we have some reports that occasionally people are developing if they use large amounts they're developing liver disease and it does have some potential for addiction so be very very careful about it so i you know on a personal level i don't you know i wouldn't get it i wouldn't be all upset that my brother-in-law was using kratom but I would express my concerns about it, uh, mm -hmm. given that I cared about my brother-in-law. Yeah, and I think, uh, Brian, when it comes to that, um, we as physicians, we, uh, we took the Hippocratic Oath, uh, primum non noce, first do no harm. So uh, unlike, uh, unlike the Kratom community, uh, our first uh, concern is regarding the safety of uh, um, any of the recommendations uh, or any of the things that we uh, we support in uh, in the care of our patients and in the scientific community there's different tiers different levels of evidence the lowest one being uh, expert opinion case reports a lot of things that we we may hear about from uh, from things such as uh, the the endorsements of uh, of the kratom users then we move on to things like case series, uh, um, smaller smaller uh, cohort studies, and then randomized controlled trials, where we enroll uh, humans to determine both the safety as well as the efficacy of, uh, of a medication. And for Kratom, we just don't have that type of, uh, of studies. You did point out that there are some uh, in um, animal models where they have use the mitragynine extract to, to see if it's a safer alternative to, to opioids. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of concerns with that. I, I have seen some, uh, some data that uh, there may be some interspecies uh, variability with regards to how uh, something like mitragynine, for example, might, uh, might act at the receptor level in animals as opposed to humans. Yeah. So there are some challenges in interpreting uh, animal uh, data in, uh, in humans. But uh, I, um, I just wanted to give you an idea of uh, where, where we come from as, uh, as physicians in terms of how we see intervention treatments in the care of our patients. I'm definitely looking forward to Kratom cl clinical trials and, and all that, and I hope it happens. I, it's just kind of hard that I just hope there's more NIDA funding. They just granted uh, like six and a half million dollars to the University of Florida to study it. And it just doesn't seem like, you know, if a drug company doesn't want to develop it, then it's not going to be developed. Um, as far as your patients with Kratom uh, addiction, um, most people are saying, well, the withdrawal is nothing much. It's just like coffee. I might get a little irritated or anxious for a couple days. This is what I was probably wrong about in the um, podcast I did on the webinar. What you're seeing is people are having more severe withdrawals. And as I was looking at um, a paper you published and some more stuff, there is cases of people that are getting sick and, and having more of an opioid-like withdrawal. Is that, is that the case with uh, the people you're treating? Your yeah, answer is yes, although I'll let, I'll let Cornell tell you about uh, the, the survey that we did of uh, 
addiction providers across the country? So I think, uh, again, I, I think I mentioned this at the beginning. Uh, I think we deal with a different type of, uh, of uh, individuals that uh, they use uh, Kratom. I think the individuals that we deal with and come to us for, for help are not the ones that are going to come back to, to you and be able to share their experience on, uh, on the blog. So there's a little bit of a disproportionate uh, patient population there. But what, what we have seen is, uh, indeed, uh, the withdrawal can be quite significant. And it, uh, it really depends on one's uh, amount of, uh, of Kratom use. It, uh, it really depends on the duration. And uh, it's uh, definitely, it's, it's very distressing, mimics opioid withdrawal very much so. And uh, a lot of individuals tend to, to return to use. I, uh, I have seen some data from uh, Southeast Asia where uh, they say that uh, the, the relapse rate at three months, relapse to use after, after just a detox, can be in the 90%. Mm-hmm. So individuals really do have a, a hard time uh, staying, uh, staying away from it. And uh, we did a, a recent survey of uh, addiction experts across the country just to get an idea of uh, how, uh, how common uh, Kratom uses uh, within their, uh, their patient population. And we saw that quite a few of them, a significant amount, have encountered individuals who, who use Kratom not just uh, uh, in, um, in the setting of uh, an opioid use disorder. So not just individuals that are looking uh, to transition from opioids onto Kratom or trying to, to um, get off Suboxone or, or something else, but also individuals who are trying to, to manage other types of condition like anxiety, uh, insomnia, depression, ADHD. Uh, those, are, those are pretty common as well. But at the same time, when it comes to, to treatment, the experience of uh, all these addiction experts has, uh, has been the same. They all, uh, especially the ones that are uh, using a higher amount of Kratom, do tend to, uh, to have this really significant withdrawal and uh, difficulty uh, staying, uh, staying away from, uh, from Kratom. And they have used uh, some, uh, some of the same medications as uh, those in opioid use disorder obviously lower dose if it's just uh, addiction to Kratom and not to opioids as well. But those, uh, those have been um, effective at uh, helping individuals reach their goals of sobriety. In the webinar, you suggested um, using uh, buprenorphine to help people on Kratom withdrawal. Is that just during the withdrawal, or is that kind of like a plan to stay on buprenorphine um, after after the withdrawals are over so currently there are no uh, no guidelines that's uh, that's part of what we're trying okay. to, uh, to establish some kind of standard of care for patients with uh, with kratom addiction but currently there's uh, there's absolutely no uh, no guidelines on uh, on how to manage it what we have observed is that for uh, for withdrawal management buprenorphine works well and we have also seen uh, through literature review some of the cases they exist, as well as uh, discussing with, uh, with our colleagues in addictions that they have used buprenorphine, they have used naltrexone, some even have used methadone, very, very few. But uh, they, they have implemented these medications in effort to help the patients achieve their goal of uh, sobriety from, uh, from Kratom. How long term, we, we don't know. Uh, it's, all we can see is, uh, is that they have used it as maintenance treatment. I mean, that one, the, my initial reaction, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to learn here and everything, but that, it really seems like, because uh, I've heard from people that had, you know, methadone horror stories and buprenorphine, suboxone, and, you know, who, who said, well, Kratom worked to get out of that. It just, it, it struck me initially as, um, you know, the cure is kind of worse than the, the disease there um is there isn't isn't that risking um getting the person addicted to you know stronger opioids well it's um it's an evidence-based modality and um i wouldn't i wouldn't call it that the individual would be addicted the individual would continue 
to be dependent okay. on um, on something that activates the, the opioid receptor. So it's not like we would be uh, the individual with uh, all of a sudden transition to something that's uh, that's more addictive. And in terms of uh, of potency. Some of the data that's out there is that uh, the way some of the alkaloids of Kratom act, they can be more potent as some of the opioid receptors compared to buprenorphine and, uh, and other more traditional uh, opioids. But uh, again, it, it depends on uh, how, uh, how we want to, to work with the individual on their goals and how they, uh, they feel about uh, wanting to, to get uh, away from, uh, from Kratom and uh, onto some more evidence-based modalities that uh, are out there. Yeah, I, think, I think something that Dr. Stanchu said is very important uh, is this, in, uh, in your understanding, the physician's standpoint here. Uh, and, and that's, we, we, you know, we have the opioid problem, which, you know, clearly, uh, is a, a tremendously serious problem that continues to wreak havoc on a large proportion of our population. And we have medications now uh, that clearly have been shown to reduce some of the complications uh, that occur in the lives of individuals who have had opioid uh, problems in the past. Mm -hmm. We're not putting Kratom in the same bucket there. Okay. But, but we're not putting it in the same bucket because we just don't know. Yeah. And when physicians relate to patients and, and give them recommendations, we believe they should be, quote, evidence-based. And so when it comes to Kratom, we don't really have the evidence. So it's hard for us to advocate for the use of uh, Kratom if we don't have evidence that it's safe and effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that. And I mean, the one thing you said about it being Kratom might act stronger on the receptors. I mean, the research I looked at, uh, it, it was from Krugel, and I, I believe it was you might have referred to it in your paper or on the um, on the webinar slides. Um, it looks like at the opioid receptor, it uh, it works in such a way that produces less side effects like respiratory depression. This is what Krugel's. Uh, um, paper said so i that's right because uh, yeah. but that has to do with uh, with the internal signaling pathway so what yeah. happens at the cellular level once the receptors are activated and that uh, looks at nitrogenine specifically what i have seen in, in these animal models i i must say that personally i am uh, i am somewhat intrigued about the potential for, uh, for any therapeutic benefit with nitrogenine. But as for Kratom as a whole, as a plant in the patient population in humans, certainly there, there are significant concerns, not just for addiction, but uh, also I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, the liver toxicity reports, uh, the, the problems that exist with uh, um, various interactions with other medications individuals are on and also with the quality control of, uh, of the products. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned uh, the Kratom uh, uh, Consumer Protection Act, which alludes to that as well. But um, yeah, to, to go back to, to what you have said, the uh, nitrogenin uh, does bind to the opioid receptor just like other opioids. But what happens from there at the cellular, within the cell, what type of signaling uh, pathways uh, get activated. It uh, certainly seems like it takes a different route, the, the traditional opioids, to where uh, there may be less respiratory depression compared to traditional opioids. There may be less risk of uh, um, things like uh, tolerance and, uh, and dependence, uh, but that's just with mitrogenin, just one of the many alkaloids found in this botanical. Well, I mean, there was a recent study um, on lyophilized kratom tea, which is basically just kratom tea. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in their conclusion, this was McCurdy from University of Florida. They got the NIDA grants and they I mean, this is one study. So I understand that. Mm -hmm. But uh, in their conclusion, repeated administration of lyophilized kratom tea did not produce physical dependence but slightly decreased naloxone precipitated withdrawal and morphine dependent mice um and just there's studies like that coming out i mean i, I and i know it's not conclusive and, th and there has to be more of them but um 
this other one uh, demonstrated the superiority of my tragenine in relation to buprenorphine. But but this one was the t kratom T. It was kratom. Um, and then there's you know other evidence that my tragenine is metabolized into seven hydroxymetragenine, which is considered the one that has more of the opioid effects. Even back in 1972, when they were doing the animal studies, the one guy that worked on it was uh, Dr. Weinbach, who developed Lipitor. It was uh, Smith, Klein, and French. So, you know, there are no slouches <laughs> when it comes to uh, uh, pharmacology. And so a lot of people in the Kratom community, they there's a mistrust of doctors, I would say. Um, even though doctors, you know, most of them are there to help, they kind of think they're, well, they're just selling me these drugs uh, that used to be Oxycontin, now it's Suboxin. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, yeah, we have a, we have a lot of thoughts about that. Sure there's, you, a, you know, this idea that somehow we're replacing one addiction for another, uh, you know, has been around since the introduction of methadone. But we have enormous amounts of uh, studies, evidence, uh, personal experiences from patients that have shown that these medications can make an enormous difference in uh, individuals' lives. The simplest way to explain this, that there's somebody who has an opioid use disorder, say they've been using heroin for three years, and they come into our uh, institution and they detox, and they say, okay, I don't want to be on any of these drugs because I don't want anything affecting my brain. Uh, their risk of relapse within the uh, next six months is somewhere north of 90%. Mm -hmm. But if we put them on a medication like buprenorphine or methadone, their risk of relapse goes well below 50%. So the individual's uh, risk uh, of continuing their addiction is much higher if they don't have the medication-assisted treatment. This yeah. is what we refer to it as. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, it's important for us to, uh, that's why we prescribe these medications. We don't view them as, uh, we, we, we don't really know when they should be stopped because even up to two years when people have an established opioid addiction, if we try to uh, taper these medications and get people off them, which we'd, we'd love to do, I would, I would love to do that with all of my patients, see them be drug free. Yeah. Uh, but on the, if the alternative is that they return to the illicit drugs that have caused them serious problems in the past, uh, I would prefer to continue prescribing. So uh, you know, I think the difference here is, is not that we're replacing an addic one addiction for another, it's that we're, we, we have something that's been proven uh, to Im in improve the welfare of individuals who are suffering from addiction problems. Uh, and that's not true of heroin or other uh, substances that are addictive. You know, with the opioid use disorder in general, individuals that are on these type of medications, first of all, one size does not fit all. It's not that everybody automatically goes on buprenorphine, um, everybody automatically goes on naltrexone or methadone. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's based on, uh, on uh, a determination made after a careful evaluation to, to see its individual's uh, psychosocial circumstances, use history, uh, past treatment failures. So there are multiple modalities that we have to, uh, to uh, be able to face each individual in these three categories. Certainly without any medications, as Dr. Prenders mentioned, their chances of sobriety are next to none. Whereas with these medications, it can make a life-changing uh, life difference. And the theory of uh, replacing one with the other, you know, patients that are on methadone or suboxone, they're able to live great fulfilling lives. They're able to have families, they're able to hold down jobs. They're not out there looking for, for heroin on the streets or doing uh, and engaging in um, any type of uh, criminal behavior to, uh, to obtain uh, substances. So they may be physiologically dependent, but Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol allows them, or Naltrexone, sorry, allows them to, to live uh, a different type of, uh, of life that's uh, not revolving around the use of substances and prioritizing that over, over everything else. Yeah, it, you know, this sounds like a familiar story. It's what I hear a lot about uh, of people who switch to Kratom from uh, 
uh, stronger opioids. They, I can hold down a job now. I'm, I'm a better mom for my kids. I mean, all these stories that kept coming in, and I'm like, wow, this is really helping people. And I know you can't, as medical doctors, you can't prescribe Kratom, but just on people's use alone, it seems like that has the potential to be uh, a medicated-assisted treatment. Um, but I, but I think the the maybe the criticism is not just of med, is not medicated-assisted treatment uh, that I was talking about from the kratom community. It's more like, well, why why do I have to go through a system that maybe I went through before and I came out hooked on oxycontin? Uh, can can I just buy this kratom? And use this, you know, and and use this responsibly myself. Or do, do you understand though that the, the, some people are, you know, it costs money to go see a doctor. It costs money to buy a box, and some uh, millions of people don't have health insurance. That's another concern. Um, and they're kind of turning this plant medicine. I mean, it's is self uh, treatment always dangerous? No, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take the position that all self-treatment is dangerous. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, if it's working for someone, they don't really need to see a physician. But if they present themselves to a physician, the physician is going to give them their best advice. And, uh, and and I think, while like in any profession, there are some bad physicians. I mean, most physicians are going to want to give advice that uh, is going to be helpful uh, to the individual who's seeking their care. Uh, you know, I, I, I did want to comment on some of what you said about mistrust of physicians because mistrust seems to be abroad in the land uh, for all kinds of authority figures. Uh, and it is a problem if we look now, you know, at the, the COVID-19 vaccine yeah. and the large number of people who are resistant to taking it, yeah. uh, they seem to have a mistrust of science. And so... That can easily translate into these group of people who are using Kratom on their own, and they just don't want to believe uh, what science is uh, revealing about the potential risks for Kratom. Uh, and I don't want to overstate the risks, but I, I do want to state the risks that we know about and try to, to you know, hopefully... Uh, work together with any individuals interested in Kratom to find out what's the best way to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks. We we don't want to hide that there are negative effects and, and you know, some people... At the same time, it seems like a lot of what the FDA did, I mean, they were talking about 44 deaths associated with Kratom. Um, there was a scientist who... Uh, Dr. Jane Babin, who wrote a paper uh, criticizing their study of it, and the biggest example was a patient who had Kratom in his system, a deceased person, who had a gunshot wound. And it, it seemed like the FDA was actually trying to, you know, highlight the negative aspects of this stuff to get it outlawed. And that's kind of is what leads to the mistrust. That's the whole thing with Kratom. It seems like there's a push to outlaw it. And that kind of leads to the mistrust. What it's going to do is, you know, anybody that says anything negative about it, they're not going to believe them, even if it's true. Well, there was definitely a push to uh, to outlaw it uh, early. Uh, and the former FDA commissioner uh, was very concerned about the potential risk. But again, you have to understand as a regulator who's responsible for the purity and safety of the American population's exposure to food and drugs, this role is to say, uh, if there's risk associated with this, I'm not sure why we wanna make it uh, available to the public. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be an apologist for him, uh, but that's, uh, it, it definitely happened. Uh, but uh, obviously it was not successful because most people can get Kratom uh, with, with impunity. And I don't, I don't, do you, are you aware of a lot of prosecutions of people who bought Kratom even where it's outlawed? Uh, there, there's a lot in uh, Thailand. Uh, I get a lot of news from Thailand and uh, they recently uh, 
legalize it again for for medicinal use. So uh, there's there's a lot, and they in general they have a pretty uh, harsh uh, anti-drug uh, law enforcement. Well, far in as Saudi Arabia, concerned. I think you can get you can get beheaded for drinking alcohol, can't you? So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I wonder, um, yeah. Brian, I wonder if you know about uh, the differences. There was uh, there was this study that came out looking at some of the more significant risks associated with uh, the higher incidence of uh, of deaths uh, associated with kratom in the United States compared to the Southeast Asia. And what came of that is that uh, some of the products that are commercially uh, available here in the United States, the kratom product do contain significant amount of uh, adulterants, impurities. Uh, I believe they had mentioned things like uh, hexane, chloroform that may increase the, the adverse outcomes. Are you aware of uh, what type of products are available in, uh, in Southeast Asia and why uh, I gather some of their product is more um, has more of a quality control? I'm, I'm not too sure. Uh, well, I'm hoping you may be able to shed some light on that. Well, yeah, we had I had uh, Dr. Singh on here, Darshan Singh, and um, and you referred to a couple of studies in your work too. He's one of the uh, he's at uh, University of Science in Malaysia, and and he's one of the uh, you know leading kratom researchers in the world. The thing with uh, Malaysian and in Thailand is they it grows on trees there. They take the leaf off the tree. And that's they brew it into a tea fresh, and they sell the tea in. Um, they call it kratom juice, and they sell it in plastic bags. It's, that's all they do. It's right from the. So there's no. What happens in the United States? It's all. Most of our kratom is grown in Indonesia. It's dried and processed. There, so there's no standardized manufacturing process there. So it's left out to dry outside sometimes sometimes there's animals crawling over it so that accounts for the salmonella um it's ground down into a powder it's basically the same thing it's leaf material but in the grinding process there could be heavy metals uh they might have you know ancient uh coffee grinders that they're using from you know the 1940s or whatever that contain lead in them so there's there's a um concern with that and i don't think that uh there's much deliberate adulteration going on um i think with the extracts there might be a, a uh, kratom extracts would be a stronger alkaloid content it'd be like uh, whiskey is to beer but in the extraction process um there's chemicals used that might be left in the uh, extract material but as far as adulterating like purposefully adding things to you know get people high or something like that I I don't think there's much evidence of that what uh, Dr. Singh said was he doesn't hear about any of these negative side effects like I've heard from people that said it caused hair loss and and I think one because it's it's fresh material pretty much directly from the tree. They don't even bother to dry it out. Um, and another reason is I think when it's in powder form, people are taking heavier amounts of it. So even if there are trace elements of maybe lead in there um, that would be under the sa safety threshold, some people are consuming so much of it that, that you know, they do get those side effects. And, and we tell people that, you know, if you're above 10 grams a day, um, that's, that's probably not so good. So do you, I mean, we've, um, we're almost coming to an hour and, and thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything else you want to say about, uh, anything we talked about or addiction yeah, well, or well, anything? Um, uh... We're on that topic of, uh, I guess, under the general umbrella of, uh, of adverse effects. Just wanted to, to see what your thoughts are on, uh, on the reports uh, surrounding the liver uh, injury and hepatotoxicity that have been linked to, uh, to Kratom. Yeah, have that's... you noticed any, uh, any of the uh, Kratom uh, members uh, or any, um, any personal uh, experiences that you might be uh, willing to share? 
I really don't hear much uh, on that. Um, I I was worried about drug interactions because it, it there's been reports of drug interactions that uh, you know it might inhibit the metabolism of other drugs, so it would you know make the effects stronger. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard. There's something called uh, um, drug induced liver injury network. It's uh, it's an organization that's been established since the early 2000s. Okay. And they collect uh, data on liver injury that's related to uh, any type of herbal supplements, including uh, including kratom. And I think. Uh, a, a significant uh, amount, and when I say significant, I'm not referring to hundreds or thousands, but quite uh, quite a bit of uh, kratom-induced uh, liver injuries uh, have been uh, reported to them, and these were investigated by uh, by a panel of uh, of experts, and indeed they uh, they did conclude that uh, there's uh, there's some association with that, but I uh, I didn't know if uh, you had any any personal or any user experience as to whether. Uh, various strains, various doses, or any other patient-specific factors may be associated to, uh, to the liver injury that can result from, uh, from Kratom use. I don't think I've heard any personal experience. There might be on, uh, there's a, a Reddit subreddit called Quitting Kratom. Most of the people who comment on our site, a vast majority have, are commenting on uh, having positive experiences, which is strange because usually people complain on the internet. <laughs> So I think the bias worked the other way. I don't really see any, but I I'll, I can look for them because it's something I'm interested in and interested in writing about as well. I know um, Dr. Singh's study in Malaysia where he actually uh, did uh, took blood from kratom consumers. They found no instance of uh, hepatotoxicity. However, the Malaysian uh, kratom is it's 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 not as strong as even kratom in Thailand, so that has to be considered as well. well Brian, I want to want to thanks uh, for uh, hosting us. Uh, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. And uh, I think we, you know, I, I know Cornell uh, would agree that we would uh, be happy to remain available if you thought that our uh, opinions uh, would be helpful to you in the future. Definitely, definitely. Absolutely. And I mean, we're uh, we're here to uh, to partner with you to uh, to learn from uh, from users and also to uh, to act as a resource. We uh, we're approachable and we, um, as as I mentioned to you, I think our uh, our goals are very much uh, overlapping with with you guys. We want to make sure that patients' conditions and needs are are addressed, but also to do so in a safe manner. And if uh, yeah. If, Obviously, it gets to a point where there's adverse effects, the risk of, uh, of addiction. Certainly, we're, we're here to act as a, as a resource. To, uh, to do. If you have a, any kind of comment, uh, please leave it. If you have experience with addiction psychiatry, kratom addiction, any other addiction, we want to hear from you. We're all here to learn and try to help each other out. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com. The music is by Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. Take care.